0: Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, April 15th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Buttigieg makes it official, Cory Booker returns to Newark for a rally, an explainer on what the difference is between a presidential exploratory committee and actually running for president, more on campaign fundraising, everybody's favorite, And Kamala Harris wins the prize for most tax returns released. Here's what you missed today on the campaign trail. On a rainy Palm Sunday, Pete Buttigieg held a rally in South Bend, Indiana, to officially announce his candidacy for president. Now, if you're saying, yeah, I thought he was already running, well, I'll have a short explainer later in this show where I address exactly that question. Point being, he held a big rally, and yes, he is running. The event was held at an old Studebaker plant with a leaky roof. The campaign had planned for it to be outdoors, but when weather forecasts called for rain, and they were super right about that, the campaign chose Studebaker Building 84. And not even the main part of the building, which is actually now being transformed into kind of a tech incubator with office space. Yeah, no, they used a train dock in the back, which is basically a giant leaky warehouse. The train dock did need some cleanup work to hold the 4,526 people it drew inside, plus outside another 1,500 plus people stood in the rain for hours. Buttigieg and his husband Chastin did go outside to address that crowd, who literally hung out in a parking lot for hours in the rain, following along as best they could. Buttigieg told them, quote, I am impressed by all those inside, but I am moved by those of you outside. End quote. Inside, even after all the preparation, Building 84 was visibly wet. The speakers on the small stage, including the candidate himself, stood at a wet podium with wet teleprompters as drops of rain slowly soaked their suits and shirts from the leaky roof, and honestly, nobody seemed to mind much. At one point early in the event, two campaign staffers asked people both in the room and across the country to send a text message to a special number. And in response, a robot would text you back and ask things like whether you were currently watching the announcement, where you were watching it from, and eventually it did ask for a donation. But by doing that, not only did the campaign gather donations, it got a vast list of cell phone numbers from its hardcore supporters. More on how that worked out at the end of this story. The rally included more than an hour of guest speakers leading up to the main event. Those included three mayors from cities across the country, plus various teachers and mentors and mentees and religious leaders from Buttigieg's life. There was a presentation of the colors by the local fire department, a recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance, and an a cappella rendition of the national anthem by Janet Norris, who, by the way, totally nailed it. Those initial speakers repeated a variety of messages in their own words, but the ones that stuck out to me were the many arguments that being mayor of a small city is actually good political prep for higher office, since, as a mayor, there's nowhere to hide. You live among your constituents, and you have to listen to them. The speakers also repeatedly emphasized generational change, suggesting, basically, that it's time to start thinking seriously about electing a millennial candidate. Another key rhetorical point was that Buddha Judge is smart. This came up a lot. You heard that from his teachers and other people who have known him all his life. At one point, Steve Adler, the mayor of Austin, Texas, asked, quote, "Wouldn't it be great if we had a president who was smart, like really, really smart, who speaks multiple languages, including a beautiful command of English?" End quote. And yes, that line brought down the house. Adler later added, "Quote." Someone who listens and actually answers questions and in those answers teaches us something. Someone who we'd want our children to emulate. Someone who rallies our better souls, end quote. And then, finally, Adler introduced the candidate himself. Buttigieg came in to the wet podium, dressed simply in a light blue button-up shirt with the cuffs rolled up, plus a tie. A contrast to the many women and men who had spoken just before him with suits on. But also, that's his typical day-to-day campaign outfit. And he had just been outside, bundled up for the rain, and his campaign staff apparently had this second dry outfit on hand for the occasion. And it did not stay dry for long. Buttigieg spoke for roughly 40 minutes, and there's a transcript of his remarks in the show notes, along with video of the event if you want to check that out. His main themes, as usual, were not specific policy ideas like numbers and stuff, but rather matters of principle that would eventually lead to specific policies. Buttigieg said, quote, Change is coming, ready or not. The question of our time is whether families and workers will be defeated by the changes beneath us, or whether we will master them and make them work toward a better everyday life for us all. And a moment calls for hopeful and audacious voices from communities like ours. And yes, it calls for a new generation of leadership in this country. The principles that will guide my campaign are simple enough to fit on a bumper sticker. Freedom, security, and democracy. End quote. He went on to define what he meant by those three principles. For instance, under the broad heading of freedom, here's a big chunk of what he said. This is a long one. Quote, healthcare is freedom because you're not free if you can't start a small business because leaving your job would mean losing your health care. Consumer protection is freedom because you're not free if you can't sue your credit card company even after they got caught ripping you off. Racial justice is freedom because you're not free if there is a veil of mistrust between people of color and the officers sworn to keep us safe. Empowering teachers means freedom because you're not free in your own classroom if your ability to do your job is reduced to a number on a page. Women's equality is freedom because you're not free if your reproductive health choices are dictated by male politicians or bosses. Organized labor sows freedom because you're not free if you can't organize for a fair day's pay for a good day's work. And take it from Chastin and me, you are certainly not free if a county clerk gets to tell you who you ought to marry based on your political beliefs. The chance to live a life of your choosing, in keeping with your values, that is freedom in its richest sense, and we know that good government can secure such freedom just as much as bad government can deny it. End quote. One more quick moment from the speech, one of the most moving lines had to do with the june 26, twenty fifteen Supreme Court decision requiring that all states allow same sex marriage and all states recognize same-sex marriages granted in other states. That was, if you'll recall, a 5-4 decision by the court. Buttigieg said, quote, Our marriage exists by the grace of a single vote on the U.S. Supreme Court. Nine men and women sat down in a room and took a vote, and they brought me the most important freedom in my life. End quote. The event ended with Creedence Clearwater Revival's song Up and Around the Bend playing as Pete and Shastin Buttigieg walked through the crowd, shaking hands with people, taking pictures, and speaking to reporters. One clip that went semi-viral on Twitter shows Buttigieg speaking in pretty fluent Spanish to a reporter for a Spanish-language channel. Just four hours later, the campaign's communications advisor, Lee Smith, announced on Twitter that Buttigieg had raised more than $1 million in new campaign donations since the speech began. So apparently that texting thing totally worked. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? On Saturday, Cory Booker returned to his hometown of Newark, New Jersey. Billed as a campaign kickoff, the event drew 4,000 people. And Booker evoked the famous letter from a Birmingham jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by saying, quote, We are here today to say we can't wait, end quote. King's letter, by the way, said in part, quote, For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every negro with piercing familiarity this wait has almost always meant never we must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied and quote and here's more from Booker at the rally quote we can't wait when powerful forces are turning their prejudice into policy and rolling back the rights that generations of americans fought for and heroes died for. We can't wait when this administration is throwing children fleeing violence into cages, banning Muslims from entering the nation founded on religious liberty, and preventing brave transgender Americans from serving the country they love. End quote. Booker used this rally as a kickoff for his Justice for All tour across America, and more on that as it happens. So when Pete Buttigieg held an event to announce that he's running for president, I had this moment of confusion. I mean, he's already running for president, right? Like, he raised $7 million in the first quarter of this year. We've known about this guy for months. He's definitely a candidate. So how come on April 14th, he holds this huge event and says, oh, hey, check it out. Big news. I'm running for president. All right, well, it's time to define the difference between an exploratory committee for a presidential run and an actual declared candidacy for president. I just want to say up front, the main source I found on this, the best one, the thing you should read if you want to know more, is Dylan Scott's article in Vox from earlier this year. It is the best explainer I've ever seen, and it clears up a lot about this issue. Here's a bit from Scott's article. Quote, When the words exploratory committee flick across your Twitter stream or TV screen, it means two things. One, this person is almost definitely running for president. Two, they want to raise some money and get their campaign together before they formally announce that they are a candidate. End quote. Okay, so that makes sense. You start looking into running, and I guess if it looks good, you jump all the way in. However, this next bit explains why that's not quite how it works in the real world anymore. Quote, One side benefit, candidates get two news cycles in the all-important bid to raise their profile with voters. They'll get headlines once for the committee news and then again for the formal announcement. In other words, exploratory is a bit of a misnomer in the presidential context. I asked a handful of election experts, and nobody could name a notable person who established an exploratory committee and then declined to announce as a candidate. If you're exploring, you're running. End quote. Okay, so here's the deal. There is no legal distinction between an exploratory committee and a campaign committee. It is the same thing, with the same paperwork, just the word exploratory in the name of one of them, but not the other one. Any exploratory committee can take in donations, it can run polls, it can pay for travel with that money. They are running. Now, having said that, in the old days, there used to be a thing called a testing the waters committee, which actually was different. You filed different paperwork with fewer disclosures, and it was truly a way to test the waters for a possible run. But that went away after a change in federal law in the year 2000. Now, just like the Vox story says, all this functionally means is that the exploratory thing allows two opportunities to get media attention. Read the story, link in the show notes, for more. All right, good news and bad news on fundraising. Good news today, also known as Tax Day, is the deadline for presidential candidates to submit the amount of money they raised in the first three months of the year to the Federal Election Commission, or FEC. So, the good news is after today, the FEC will have that data and we can report on it as soon as they push it back out. There's a link in the show notes to the FEC webpage where they break down who has brought in what so far. The bad news is that the submissions are happening today. So, the data isn't actually posted online yet. Later this week, once the data is posted, oh, you better believe we're going to get into some more analysis, but I will make that fun, I promise. In the meantime, a bunch of candidates have told the media what their fundraising numbers are. Now, presumably, only candidates who have pretty good numbers would bother to do this. So here's a breakdown of what I know right now on the morning of April 15th, and this may have changed by the time you hear this. In the top spot is Bernie Sanders with 18.2 million dollars. Second place is Kamala Harris with 12 million. Third place, Beto O'Rourke with 9.4 million. Fourth place, Pete Buttigieg with 7 million. Fifth place, Elizabeth Warren with 6 million. Sixth place, Amy Klobuchar with 5.2 million. Seventh place, Cory Booker with 5 million. Eighth place, Kirsten Gillibrand with 3 million. Ninth place, Andrew Yang with 1.7 million. And in 10th place, Julian Castro with 1.1 million. Now, if you add that all up, and keep in mind there's still like eight ish major candidates who have not yet reported their numbers to the media, the total raise for Q1 that we know about right now is $68.6 million. Now, this raises the question. How much did Donald Trump raise in Q1 this year? Because he's going to be up against somebody in this field. Well, he beat every individual candidate handily. But if you take the Democratic primary field in combination, of course, the Democrats are donating a lot more. Trump told the media that he brought in $30 million in Q1. And that's on top of roughly $67 million he's raised throughout his candidacy slash presidency, much of which he has already spent. Keep in mind, he's been running for re-election since the day he took office. But here's a twist. The Republican National Committee told CBS News that it has raised $45.8 million in the first quarter, and presumably, you know, a lot of that money goes to re-electing Trump as well, plus other Republicans in races for, you know, Congress and stuff like that. So as we wait for the official totals, I want to help you understand both the mood and the meaning of all this money stuff. And the best statement to that effect that I've heard so far comes from NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason. Here's part of what she said on the NPR Politics podcast on April 3rd. Quote, Democrats are excited, they're enthusiastic, and they're willing to open their wallets. I think the overall fundraising, the fact that it is so spread out, tells you the Democrats are very invested and energized about this field. I think it tells you a little bit less about drawing from these numbers to who's going to win the nomination. The person who raises the most money early on doesn't necessarily get the nomination. Just ask President Jeb Bush. End quote. And finally today, more tax stuff. You know, it's tax day. I got to do more tax stuff. All right, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I'm a little bit obsessed with candidates releasing their tax returns. And until recently, Elizabeth Warren led the field with 11 years of tax returns released. Then Amy Klobuchar beat that with 12 years of returns. But now Kamala Harris has taken the crown, releasing 15 full years of her tax returns, including her return for 2018. She has gone all the way back to the early 2000s when she was the DA in San Francisco. So the first thing here is always, all right. How much did this candidate make last year? Meaning, how rich or not rich is this person? In this next bit, I'm relying on a reporting from Time magazine by Juana Summers, Alan Suderman, and Stephen Braun. So in Harris's case, she's filing jointly with her husband Doug Emhoff, who just by himself raked in about 1.5 million dollars working as an attorney in 2018. We can safely push that aside for now, but it's interesting to note that all of these candidates who are married and filing jointly are revealing significant financial details about their spouses. That's just how it works. Okay, so what did Harris make herself last year? Well, her salary as a senator brought in about $157,000. Not bad. Plus, she brought in another... $320,000 in net income from her various books, including a a newly released one that's doing really well. So the couple combined brought in an adjusted gross income of more than $1.9 million last year. And to be clear, the great majority of that is from Harris's husband. They paid about $700,000 in federal taxes and donated $27,000 to charity. Now, we are still waiting for the promised release of a decade's worth of tax returns from Bernie Sanders. He recently promised that we would see those today, April 15th. So by the time you hear this, I hope those have come out, and I can dig into those tomorrow. that's it for another episode of the primary ride home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. We've got a big week coming up and I am glad to have you with me on the ride. I'll talk to y'all tomorrow.